The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. This is a great night because so many people have gone to the voting booth and they've sent a message. We are not helpless in the face of our problems. One of the first things we're going to have to do is be clear that there is only one Democrat in this race. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The committee will come to order. Sworn oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States. These weapons have no place in our communities. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The biggest primary night of the year makes a tough ride for progressives and for Donald Trump. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with seven more states in the bag and another step closer to the general election. We'll have expert analysis ahead from Kyle Kondik, managing editor at Sabado's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia. Later, Bloomberg's Mark Niquette will join us on the MAGA movement he says will transcend and outlive a man named Donald Trump. And as the House holds an emotional hearing on gun violence today, we'll get analysis from our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. America votes and we get analysis on the biggest primary day of the cycle by none other than the president of the United States. Joe Biden spoke with reporters on the tarmac today at Andrews Air Base. He's on his way to California for the Summit of the Americas. So what did we learn? I think the voters sent a clear message last night. Both parties have to step up and do something about crime as well as gun violence. And I said, as you recall, with the first major bill we passed, we gave the states and localities billions of dollars, billions of dollars to have, and encouraged them to use it to hire police officers and reform the police department. Very few have done it. In addition to that, I sent the Congress a request for $300 million in this year's budget to deal with hiring cops, to retrain cops. That was not answering a question, by the way. He approached reporters on the tarmac and said, I'd like to give you a statement. A clear message from voters, he says, crime and gun violence. And indeed, crime was a big deal, a big part of the debate in California, among other places, of course, where they were voting. We now have a runoff in the Los Angeles mayor's race, which, as we told you yesterday, split Hollywood in some interesting ways. And it's the race that many predicted with Republican-turned-Democrat Rick Caruso. This is a great night because so many people have gone to the voting booth and they've sent a message. We are not helpless in the face of our problems. We will not allow this city to decline. We will no longer accept excuses. We have the power to change direction of Los Angeles, and that's the way we're voting. And yes, along with... Longtime Democratic Representative Karen Bass. One of the first things we're going to have to do is be clear that there is only one Democrat in this race. Right. One Democrat. Right. We cannot allow him to have that brand. We cannot allow that. And he spent several months constructing 
pretty much a fake kind of image. Congresswoman Bass talking to supporters in the street after the polls closed, remembering Caruso outspent her by 13 to 1, setting up what could be the most expensive race in the country here by the time it's done. Imagine. This is where we begin with Kyle Kondik, managing editor at Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia, where they do fantastic work in advance of and following nights like last. Kyle, are we about to set a record for money in a mayor's race here? Put me on the spot there. I don't know exactly what the record is. I'm assuming it would have something to do with the New York City mayoral race and, uh, frankly, Michael Bloomberg. (laughs) But um, uh, I do think we're going to see a lot of money. And, of course, Rick Caruso has got a lot of money uh, to to spend in this race. And, and, you know, it's not necessarily uncommon for, you know, Republicans to be able to win some uh, or, well, Caruso's not technically a Republican, but a sort of yeah. lapsed Republican uh, to win a uh, mayoral race, because we've seen that in, in, in New York, too. Of course, L.A. and New York are both extremely Democratic cities at the federal level, but they are sometimes open to taking a different tack in the in the mayor's race. And that's what Caruso is hoping for. Yeah, boy, this is going to be interesting. I have to say that Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent of Bloomberg Radio, because you said so, Kyle. Uh, and of course, sorry to put you on the spot. No, there, you're not the, the first, first thing, to draw. It's really the first thing that comes to mind because you know we did see this with with Bloomberg himself. Uh, uh, you know, 20 years ago, of course, taking over for for Rudy Giuliani, who was a uh, you know who, who was also also Republican at that yes. you know, at that at that time. So it is just an interesting little parallel. And of course, crime is a big topic in LA, just like it often is it in. Sure. Well, so look ahead uh, to this general election contest. Uh, Obviously, money is going to be a big factor. But as we heard from Karen Bass last night, she's really trying to paint him as a fake Democrat. You even accidentally referred to him as a Republican. Uh, But he's also got Gwyneth Paltrow and Kim Kardashian and, you know, a lot of sort of unsuspecting people following him who call him a friend and think that he's the answer to crime and homelessness. How does Karen Bass top that? Uh, look, I mean, I think she is going to need to, you know, get get to Democratic voters essentially to come home and to convince them that she's the right fit for this race. And also that, uh, you know, that she is the, the true Democrat uh, mm-hmm. in the race, because, you know, one general trend I think we've seen even in, you know, in in in, in, in sort of races far below the ballot from the presidential race is that, you know, you're seeing partisanship more often um, uh, d- define these races as, as, as opposed to people wanting to, to vote across the aisle. But yes, again, right. Caruso is technically a Democrat uh, in, in, in this race. Um, and, you know, Bass is going to want to have to want to bring some of those voters home. But also, you know, it's 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 a year that um, where uh, voters, even Democratic voters, are probably going to be a little bit more open to, uh, you know, to, to, to alternatives to mm-hmm. true blue Democrats, because it's probably going to be a pretty bad year um, for Democrats across the country in this midterm. We're only, by the way, it's about 50 percent reported here in L.A. Rick Caruso, 42 percent. Karen Bass, 37 percent. I never thought I'd talk so much about a mayor's race in a city that I was not living in at the time. Uh, Now, of course, again, both ran on improving crime and homelessness. Another big part of this. Well, in San Francisco, Kyle, uh, uh, the progressive district attorney lost a recall election. Chesa Boudin aimed to lower incarceration rates put a check on the police like a number of, of progressive prosecutors who were elected over the last couple of years. He lost convincingly 60 percent to 40 percent. And he spoke after it was done. And I want to be very clear about what happened tonight. The right wing billionaires. Outspent us three to one. They exploited an environment in which people 
are appropriately upset. Kyle, you know, as journalists, we're always looking for trend stories, right? We're seeking trends. Is it safe to say that this was a, a tough night, certainly in, in California, for, for progressives? Did we, did we turn back a couple of pages on defund the police, et cetera? Uh, not necessarily. Um, you know, you, you, you could find other examples of um, progressives doing, you know, d- doing well in these kinds of local races. And certainly San Francisco, this, this was a uh, kind of the, the, the banner race. But I think the overall story is a little bit muddier than that. There's a um, th- there's still going to be a race, too, for the uh, uh, Los Angeles sheriff. And you've got a mm-hmm. you know, Democrat who's relatively conservative, who, um, you know, was, is, is, is still locked in a close race there. So I think the overall picture is 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 uh, is, is kind of muddy. But I do think that yeah. the interpretation anyway, a lot of people have taken away is that, you know, progressives were dealt a blow in San Francisco. I do think yeah. the truth is probably a little more complicated than that. Analysis from Kyle Kondik with us from Sabato's Crystal Ball at UVA and looking at some of these congressional races. Uh, David Valadeo was one in California while we're there. A Republican voted to impeach Donald Trump. Uh, unclear exactly if he's going to make it. He fell behind the Democrat in that race. But one of several Republican members, Kyle, in primaries last night who also voted for the January 6th commission and based on past primaries, you would think that there'd be some punishment there from, you know, from the the MAGA crowd in South Dakota, though. Dusty Johnson won with a pretty good number, 59 percent. New Jersey, Chris Smith won with about 58 percent. Have we overplayed the Trump effect? Uh, you know, I think you have to put into context that, you know, incumbent members of Congress very rarely lose primaries and they usually win by bigger margins than, than what we're talking about. Now, granted, it's a redistricting year, although South Dakota is an at-large state. So of course there's no redistricting to be done. It's a you know st- a statewide election every every two years. So I do think that there is some there, there has been some uh, you know penalty paid for members who are seen as being uh, you know uh, not necessarily you know maybe disloyal to Donald Trump or at least critical of Donald Trump or mm-hmm. I think one other way of looking at it is to say that that some Republicans can paint these members as essentially working with Democrats to try to discredit Donald Trump. And I think that that continues to be kind of a black mark for Republicans, even though, you know, a Trump endorsement or a Trump disendorsement is not necessarily the the be all and end all in these primaries, too. So, again, it's kind of it's kind of nuanced. But, um, you know, in Valdeo, um, it looks like he probably will advance the general election, although there's still a lot of votes outstanding in California. You can never quite, yeah. you know, it, it takes basically weeks for, for the California vote counts to become final. And I don't <laughs> think there's anything nefarious about that. It's just that that's, that's how it works out there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we still have to kind of wait and see, but uh, um, you know, Valdeo is one of, is holding down at, you know, one of the uh, most democratic districts held by any Republican. And so yeah, if he right. were to lose, that would, that would uh, give Democrats a good pickup opportunity in, mm-hmm. in an, an election year that otherwise looks pretty bad for Democrats. If, if president Biden is correct, Kyle, that crime and gun violence were the issues on voters' minds, that's what drove people to polls last night. Does that flip to inflation, oil prices, et cetera, the other issues that we're hearing about on a daily basis in the general election? Uh, I don't necessarily agree with the president's characterization of that. I do think that that in general, the, the, the big the big issues right now are kind of you know what, what voters say they are typically yeah. inflation and in the economy more broadly, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, 
take the take the top in terms of polling of the of, of what people care about. And, uh, you know, the, the problem for Democrats is that, um, yes, there are some positive economic indicators out there, you know, on un- unemployment, uh, et, et cetera. But uh, people believe the economy is bad, essentially, because inflation is bad. Um, mm-hmm. And far be it for me to tell them that they're wrong about that. Um, uh, so and, and that's what the Democrats are kind of have to try to do is to say, hey, well, actually, things are better than you think they are. But yeah. that can typically be a pretty hard argument. This sure is. Uh, great talk. Kyle Kondik, I'm so glad you could join us the morning after the big night. We're calling it Super Tuesday here on Bloomberg Sound On. Come back and see us, Kyle, as we work our way down the campaign trail. He's managing editor Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics. On the fastest hour in politics, we'll assemble the panel next. See how Rick and Jeannie are feeling after the big night. We'll check traffic and markets for you along the way, as you would expect. After all... This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more. CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden called it a clear message to address crime. As you heard his analysis from Super Tuesday primary voting, it's time he says the states and localities spend the money they have to deal with crime as well as retrain police officers. Recalling a bit some of the language he used in his State of the Union address, if you remember, he said, I don't want to defund the police. I want to fund the police. And we assemble our panel on this day after. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Jeannie, it was really interesting to hear from Kyle uh, Kondik there, who uh, was sort of busting some of the conventional wisdom coming out of last night. Did you see this as a challenge to progressives in California? I think it may be an overstatement to know that definitively at this point, you know, because if if we look at these two races that we've been talking so much about, these are both local officials. We haven't seen this impact at the state level where incumbents actually in California did pretty well. So, you know, we can overstate these things. You know, my takeaway from last night out of San Francisco and L.A. was you have to do the job you were chosen to do. If you're elected to be D.A., Mm-hmm. You need to prosecute criminals. Mm-hmm. If you're elected to the school board because they had the recall the year before, you need to educate children. So mm-hmm. do the job you were elected to do, I think, is the number one lesson. Whether that expands into a, you know, there is a challenge between progressives and establishment Democrats in the party. We know that. But whether that is a full-out attack nationwide on progressives, I think it's too early to say. What did you learn last night, Rick? You know, I don't know. I, I think it's a little different. I think that it was a rebuke to the, the progressives in the Democratic Party. I think this concept of th- hug a thug that you, we saw in the New, New York uh, mayor's elections and now in the West Coast uh, is something that they've got to sit up and, 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 and recognize as a problem for the way that they talk about crime and, and, and the policies that they want to pursue around crime. And so How does Joe I think Biden play into that, of, Rick? Well, I think he, 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 he read the tea leaves. He's, he's a smart Paul. And when, when he spoke out today, 
it was he defined this election as about uh, crime and making sure that we mm-hmm. can get ahead of it. And so beats uh, inflation, he, I guess. But it. I mean, he, well, yeah, he doesn't want to talk about inflation. But this is one that he's got to get right, uh, because at some point people will take their eye off of the economic issues and want to know what's going on in their neighborhood. And as yeah. Jeannie said, these are local issues in the sense that crime is up all over the country. So it is it is localized, but it is a national problem. But he did distance himself from defund the police, Jeannie, before today, right? I mean, I mentioned the State of the Union. Even on the campaign trail, progressives were worried about him being, I guess, too tough on crime. Is that the right way to put it? Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden, I think, is much more of a moderate. He's always been that way. He he wasn't comfortable in that sort of progressive lane. I mean, that was what we heard throughout the entire campaign from people like Elizabeth Warren and, and AOC and Bernie Sanders. So he's much more of an establishment, um, you know, moderate Democrat, if you will. Um, you know, the one thing I would say is I just think we have to be careful to overread. I do agree with Rick. There is this debate going on, and they can overreach on the progressive side but the reality is is that this elected DA in San Francisco yeah. he is a very specific person I mean he had a very strong message crime was very bad in San Francisco and he came with a history that made him a target and he lost last night with this recall but I'm just not so sure that that extends across the country at the at the federal level if you will do Democrats need to start talking more like the president here, Rick, or do they need to get their arms around inflation? I'm assuming uh, that as we go from primary to general here, inflation is going to be the deciding factor once we get to November. Maybe there's a Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade that that, that adds another layer there. But is this going to be a crime election in November? Yeah, we have to understand that a lot of these elections we're talking about, these officials, you know, district attorneys and mayors, aren't really driving the economic uh, burden of their communities, right? And, and, and they're really defining their own races, and, and they've defined them as being about security and homelessness. So uh, I think that's, that's part of it. But two, this is, a, this is an issue that, that, that the president has to lead his party on, right? I mean, Jeannie pointed out he's not in sync with the, 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 the liberal left of his party, the progressives. And, 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 but he's not winning that fight. In other words, he's letting them push back on him on issues of crime, on issues of the economy. Uh, there's not a single voice of the Democratic Party. The president is not uh, the strongest voice all the time on mm-hmm. issues of inflation. Mm-hmm. And, and so he's got to outshout members of his own party just so that the public can hear what the argument is against what Republicans are saying, which is the Democrats brought this on. This is a policy of the Biden administration that they couldn't contain inflation. A lot of this will be crystallized in this L.A. mayor's race that we've talked so much about uh, this week and, and last Jeannie, Karen Bass says that Rick Caruso is a Republican in sheep's clothing, right? That he's he's Mr. Money, but he's not the person you need to deal with issues, social issues from crime to homelessness. But my goodness, when you look at the numbers here, including the money that's been spent, how is she actually going to convince people of that case? 
I think it's a hard case to make because the reality is is that people are extremely dissatisfied with what has gone on in that city. And she represents in many Democrats' minds sort of the, you know, what has been the uh, quid, not quid pro quo, but what has been the reality of the city. And he represents a change. Mm -hmm. So he's in a much better position, not only vis-a-vis -vis the money, but coming in and saying, I'm going to do things differently. I have a different plan. So I think she's got, you know, she's got an uphill battle there to make this case and of course in the face of all the money that he's spending is another thing she's got to yeah. deal with and let's not forget he's also talking a lot about corruption because people well, hold that thought Jeannie. Taxes. rick yeah. and Jeannie with us for the hour this is bloomberg pretty amazing to think that you know we're here in the throes of primary season we're getting deeper into this thing and the politician that has received more talk really than i guess anyone else is donald trump the one who's not on the ballot and he's certainly had an influence on some of these primaries, others not so much. But the Republican Party is betting that the Trump brand will help get things done in November, take back Congress. This is the year that we're going to take back the House, we're going to take back the Senate, and we're going to take back America. We're going to take it back. That's the former president at a rally. What, just two weeks ago? And the crowd goes wild. Until you read Mark Niquette's column, though. Trump's cult of personality has been replaced, he says, with a new political philosophy branded like his buildings and resorts. It's a really smart piece. We had to talk to Mark about it. The Make America Great Again movement, he writes... That tens of millions of Americans adopted, put him in the White House, transformed the Republican Party. But the current crop of midterm primaries is revealing the former president's brash brand of politics more than the man himself is driving many Republican voters. Thanks for being with us, Mark. Does that mean that Joe Biden is on to something when he keeps talking about the ultra MAGA agenda? Yeah, we're going to see, because it, it, it does look like the, the movement that, as you say, Trump tapped to get to the White House and certainly amplified, you know, showing signs of being willing to, to, to live with or without him. Um, we noticed as we were covering the, the Trump rallies uh, during the primary season that he would stage to help support his endorsed candidates, that mm -hmm. uh, these, these folks would come to the rallies, they'd be wearing their MAGA hats and their MAGA gear and, you know, chanting Trump's name at the rally, but... They weren't inclined to support the candidates that Trump was endorsing. Uh, they're going to make up their own minds, and, and they liked other candidates better. And, yeah. and we saw that in, in some of these primaries where Republican voters, you know, maybe they love Trump, but they weren't going to support his endorsed candidate. That's pretty remarkable. But to your point, it's about the brand, just like it's on one of his buildings here. His brand just came off the hotel in Washington. But the idea is they plaster themselves with MAGA, and don't have a lot of interest in the content necessarily. They, in some cases, the, pres the former president was having trouble pronouncing the names of some of the candidates that he had endorsed. Right. It's, it's, I guess the idea is the, the philosophy and the style, more than anything else, of MAGA is more important perhaps than you know, Trump himself. Trump is still overwhelmingly popular in the GOP, yep. um, and I, I think he's you know, odds on favor to be the, the Republican nominee if he runs again for president in 2024. Um, but there's a sense now that, and we quoted a couple of folks, folks in our piece, uh, saying that if, if Trump were to leave the stage tomorrow, MAGA would still exist. You know, this yeah. 
type of, uh, of aggressive politics and sort of the America first ideas that Trump championed would still live on and, and probably be embodied by somebody else. Huh. Well, that's my question for you, Mark. Is this the type of thing where a Ron DeSantis takes on the MAGA mantle or, you know, somewhere down the road, Ted Cruz is your MAGA guy, or is this a more decentralized movement that will never have another figurehead like Donald Trump? We're going to find out, I think, because movements have always had factions. Uh, if you consider the, the, the Tea Party uh, movement, for example, there were different groups within the, the movement, you know, struggling to get uh, control and, and dominance. And we may see that in the MAGA movement. But I think, you know, at least initially, you're, you're seeing um, folks like Ron DeSantis sort of adopt the the, the MAGA playbook, you know, he's he's promoting issues that are popular with the base. He went after Disney as a corporation that, mm-hmm. you know, was considered, he considered woke. Mm-hmm. Um, he has sort of an aggressive style of politics that mirrors Trump's with some of the same aggressive rhetoric. Um, so at least initially you're seeing sort of uh, characters adopting the MAGA style and, and playbook, even if they're not specifically as um, um, charismatic, perhaps, as, as Donald Trump. Not not many people have been to as many Trump rallies as you have, Mark. Uh, do you plan to continue attending them for the next several months? Yeah, I think so because they're they're always interesting, uh, if nothing else. And and you know, it's 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 helpful to talk to to folks who are there because, yeah. um, like I said, that that was sort of our, our first clue that you know this um, phenomenon was underway. That the number of people who would come to these rallies and clearly are are strong Trump supporters, but you know they weren't going to blindly follow him in, in, in mm-hmm. supporting these candidates that Trump was there to, to promote. Great piece. Look for it on the terminal. He's Not God by Mark Niket, Bloomberg Politics reporter. Always a great pleasure to have Mark with us. Just curious to touch on this with the panel quickly. Well, while we have a moment here, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, of course, spending the hour with us. What's your thought on this, Rick? Uh, if Donald Trump fell off the face of the earth, I think the line was tomorrow, uh, the MAGA brand would continue. Do you see that happening? Yeah, I think it, it'll happen for a while. I think it'll be subsumed by other movements. Uh, as you were talking, uh, there you know, was the Tea Party before there was MAGA. Ross Perot right. had his own brand of cult of personality prior to that. Um, we, we've seen this come and go in, in the party. And, and I think what makes it unique to, to Donald Trump is there's no real ideological underpinning, right? He vacillates all over the place on whether he's a conservative or a progressive in, in many ways. And, and he makes his decisions based on his inclinations, not on any kind of uh, MAGA ideology. And so yeah. I think it's going to become up to others, you know, after Donald Trump to sort of define it. And they'll define it in their own way because it'll be in their interest not to just be a knockoff of Donald Trump. What does MAGA mean, Jeannie, if... If Trump supporters say they support the former president, but they would not vote for the candidates he endorsed. Yeah, yeah. I, best title of Mark's piece. I love that title, and it's a great piece. But, you know, I was thinking of Kathy Barnett in Pennsylvania. I mean, yeah. she campaigned talking about the fact that, you know, she's really MAGA, whether he, you know, Donald Trump recognized it and endorses her or not. More MAGA than Trump. That's right. And so I do think that there is a way in which this could, uh, you know, sustain despite, you know, what, what happens to Trump, whether he's on a ballot or not. I'm not sure for how long, but at least in the short period, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly out there. Yeah. Has Webster put MAGA in the dictionary yet? Did that happen, Matt? We got to look that up. If not yet, it's certainly going to happen this year. 
Ultra MAGA, anyone? Rick and Jeannie, we'll reassemble the panel uh, coming up next here, following the gun hearing today on the House and the latest on compromise. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Turns out MAGA is in the dictionary, just not the MAGA we thought. Has to do with Hinduism, apparently. This is fascinating to me. And the Soras of India. Maybe this year, Webster will get with it. Thanks for joining us on the Wednesday edition of Bloomberg Sound on the fastest hour in politics as we turn to what happened today in the House. Along with our panel, Rick and Jeannie are with us. Both sides of the aisle say they're working to finalize a deal to address gun violence in the Senate as soon as this week. Things have been a little bit more complicated in the House where the Oversight Committee today held a hearing. The committee will come to order. There were family victims from those lost at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, from those lost in Buffalo. There were law enforcement officials and, of course, politicians on the panel asking the questions, including Congresswoman Katie Porter, Democrat from California. Shootings involving assault weapons are six times as deadly as shootings involving handguns. And when assault weapons are equipped with high-capacity magazines or bump stocks, the death toll rises even further. Representative James Comer is ranking member on the committee, Republican from Kentucky. I strongly believe that there is an important place for law-abiding gun owners to serve in protecting themselves, their families, and their communities from violence. This went on for hours today following a similar hearing yesterday. And I'd love to hear from the panel on this because there are there are two parallel tracks happening. One seems to be associated with reality and the other one does not. Jeannie, this effort in the House here, they marked up a series of uh, a package of, of legislation, if I can call it that, last week. The hearing's now underway. Nancy Pelosi says they're going to vote on these bills, but but there's no path for them to become law, no path for them to get through the Senate. So what are we doing here? You know, there, there's no chance. And, you know, the, the House has a very publicly, um, you know, be holding, holding these hearings. They're very emotional. Another emotional day following Matthew McConaughey's, you know, statement in front of the White House press corps yesterday. You heard from the victims and an 11-year-old girl smearing her f- dead friend's blood on her. It, just a horrific hearing to, and to, to witness that. And, of course, as you mentioned, the House putting forward a package that has no chance of getting through the Senate. And then you juxtapose that with the fact that the Senate is working very much in private. They're not, you know, using these emotional, at least not yet having these emotional testimony go forward. Mm-hmm. And yet we know what they're debating about now is much more incremental and likely won't change gun laws, at least if you listen to what Senator Cornyn had to say. Yes, right. The bill expected to pass the House without any Republican support. Uh, we heard Republicans uh, talking about this in their leadership briefing in the House today. Representative Scalise was asked about it. 
Uh, Rick, he wouldn't even say that he was in favor of a red flag law. It, it does seem like the House and Senate are two different worlds right now. Well, they, they always have been and always will be. Uh, I think you can almost ignore the Republican leadership in the House. They're not a factor in the debate right now on guns and, and not in the House. And, and, and no one in the Senate's listening to them. So the yeah. people who are doing the bipartisan negotiation in the Senate are the ones we're trying to make progress. I think they are legitimately trying to find common ground uh, amongst Republicans and Democrats to do something about this. I do think that the, the Democratic leadership in the House is doing a good job of keeping the public attention on this issue. Now, we know that these issues tend to fade and take the political saliency out of the debate. And so by doing things like inviting Matthew McConaughey over to the White House to talk about his hometown and the massacre that took place, having these hearings, uh, even if the legislation isn't going anywhere, the testimony mm-hmm. was extremely powerful, as Jeannie said. And, and, and this won't be missed by those negotiators when they see the evening news tonight. And so uh, I think that, that right now the environment is ripe for a deal. And I think before we start classifying the deal as is, 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 is not good enough, we have to remember that, that we've had incidents like this where nothing has happened. Yes, right. And so I think that, that we, we, ought to, we ought to keep the heat on uh, members of the negotiating committee in the Senate and, and see what comes out of there. And, and, and frankly, the only thing that's disappointing to me is that there isn't a deadline uh, for their actions. Uh, they, they need to be under some public heat. Yeah. to show their cards. Well, interesting to hear from uh, Senator Chuck Schumer today, Jeannie. He said, uh, at least in the last 24 hours, this may have been late yesterday, but he said the Senate will vote on gun legislation soon. This is different than a week from now, like we heard when everyone's back, you know, you guys are out of time. He does seem like he's willing to give Murphy and Cornyn a couple of extra days, if not weeks, no? Yeah, and, and I think he's right to do that. I think both he and the president are trying to, as Rick said, you know, allow this committee to do its work, to do it in private, and to try to come to some agreement. But we also need to say that Chris Murphy yesterday was saying that, you know, they're extending a hand of partnership to their Republican colleagues. They're trying to get a deal. They're not going to settle for legislation. That's box checking. And so where, <laughs> what that means exactly is very unclear to me. And timing-wise, I think is still a big question mark. I was thinking they needed to maybe get a framework this week but i don't know if we're going to see something like that till maybe next week and the longer this goes on Mm -hmm. the harder to move forward on it so i think you know at least by july 4th we have to see action the lesson we have been taught repeatedly over the last year or so uh this time tomorrow right around this time tomorrow we're going to be gearing up for the big hearing the january 6th committee this is the first prime time hearing. You've heard about it. The networks now are on board. This thing starts at 8 o'clock. And uh, we're told by the committee, as we've discussed on this program, that we're going to see and hear things. We're going to learn things new, not just another montage of terrible video from the riot at the Capitol. This came up, uh, by the way, in that Republican leadership briefing that I mentioned today. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik was asked about this what her thought was on the work of the committee and what she expected to hear on Thursday night. Listen to the way she answered this and get prepared to hear this a lot more over the course of this process. They are scrambling to change the headlines 
praying that the nation will focus on their partisan witch hunt instead of our pocketbooks. It will not work. Just this week, Nancy Pelosi's illegitimate January 6th committee secretly hired the former president of ABC News to produce these shameless primetime show. This was the same producer that covered up victims of Jeff Epstein. This further solidifies what we know, what we have known from day one. This committee is not about seeking the truth. It is a smear campaign against President Donald Trump, against Republican members of Congress, and against Trump voters across this country. This committee is unconstitutional. It is illegitimate. I thought it was worth running that whole thing, Rick. Partisan witch hunt, we've heard that from Kevin McCarthy. Illegitimate, unconstitutional, we've heard that from Republicans as well. Now taking aim at this this former ABC News president, James Goldston, who we, at least I referred to this, that they had hired a veteran news uh, a, a news person to make videos. He's going to be producing videos as part of this presentation. To think that she's invoking the name Jeff Epstein into this, Rick, this is uh, this is a new layer. Yeah, it's it's not a new layer in the debate in Washington for a long time. Uh, it's a new layer in this debate. But right. um, the reality is this is a classic, you know, attack the messenger. So when you don't have anything to say about the message, right, there's nothing she can say about what happened on January 6th mm-hmm. that isn't either already in the record or uh, very uh, defamatory to her own party. Uh, then she got to attack the messenger. Uh, In this case, I think part of the reason that the uh, committee is doing these uh, high-profile hearings uh, in prime time is to actually set that record straight, right, and and to to try and get that message out that this is the historical context that we want. It is a competitive marketplace for ideas, and Mm -hmm. they have to be out there shouting as loud as they can to make sure people understand what their version of events on January 6th is. There is not, as as Elise Stefanik pointed out, a uniform sense of history here. And this is a very important task the committee has to set the record straight. Was it smart to hire a former ABC News president uh, to be involved in this, Jeannie? I actually think it was. And, and unlike Lee Stefanik just said, this was not a secret. This, you know, we've all been talking about it. It was widely reported. So maybe because she was at the fundraiser with Trump this week, raising millions of dollars, she didn't get to see the news, but widely reported. Oh, and um, her fourth fundraiser, by the way. Does it? I mean, it, it does. You mean her fundraising? Well, no. The, the, the fact that, that Jeffrey Epstein, that, oh. I mean, the, the he was. He was running the network at a time when this story was was quashed. I realize that. But what does that have to do? I mean, talk about distracting from the point. It it is. And it's so Washington insider because people are not going to be paying attention to who cut the videos. Um, You know, was it a, you know, a former ABC president or somebody else? They, you know, the real question here and there are real questions. Will anybody watch these hearings? Will it Mm -hmm. change any minds? Will it set the historical record straight? Will it be seen as non-political? Will we learn anything new? So there's a whole host of real questions to be asked about what they're doing. But involvement of, you know, somebody at ABC and Jeffrey Epstein is a far cry. And, you know, but this is where Elise Stefanik is as she fights to take control of this party, probably away from Kevin McCarthy, but he doesn't see it coming yet. Just in the few seconds we have left, Rick, if it looks pre-produced like like mainstream media, is is that a risk that people won't trust it? 
Well, I think people are used to wanting to be given their news, you know, by uh, sweet, uh, sweet water in their drink. And so if they can make it a better way to communicate, look, most hearings are boring. This one can't be. <laughs> sweet water in the panel. Rick and Jeannie with us as ever. We'll meet back here. We'll get you ready tomorrow night on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.